Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody on this nice wet day? A little bit drier than uh, Wednesday, I think, right? How many of you had, uh, had some flooding this week? Yeah, how many of you had generators that had to run this week? No, no generators, but a lot of flooding. Yeah, we had some, uh, we, had, we didn't really have a whole lot of issues at our house, but we did hear about some um, at others, and uh, hopefully they are able to uh, pump out and dry out, and uh, we pray for them. Um, want to just, <clears throat> excuse me, want to just make a, a quick announcement again about the uh, Exploring the Bible class. Uh, give you just a little more information about what it is that we're going to be doing. Uh, we are going to learn how to study the Bible. We're going to learn how to look at the words that are there. We're going to learn to look at the, uh, the backgrounds of, of the writing, we're going to look at the history, we're going to look at the culture, we're going to look at all of these kinds of things to try to uh, learn for ourselves how to study the Bible more effectively, how to know God more uh, than we do now. And we're going to actually be working uh, in the, the book of Mark. Uh, so one of the, the four Gospels that talks about the life of Jesus Christ we're not going to get through the book of Mark in nine weeks. Um, just, well, actually we will. We're actually, we're, we're going to read the book several times, uh, but we're not going to study through the book of Mark in nine weeks. It's just, we don't have that time. Uh, but the purpose here is to show you how, uh, through the first few chapters of the book of Mark, how to study uh, and how to uh, allow the Holy Spirit to uh, inform you as far as what the scripture is saying to us. Uh, so, and then you, uh, my prayer then is that you will be able to go home and finish studying the book of Mark uh, and uh, then studying on through uh, some other books of the Bible. Uh, so if, uh, if you're interested in joining us, again, we're going to be starting on uh, September 21st which is a Tuesday. We're going to be meeting Tuesday nights from 6.30 to 8 uh, up in the fellowship hall. Uh, we will have uh, a, a large group time and then we will be breaking up into small groups for discussion uh, as well. So uh, if you're interested, come let me know or send me an email or send the church office an email. Uh, we would love to have you at uh, this Exploring the Bible class. So <clears throat> as part of my role as a teacher at East Pennsboro High School, I advise for a Rotary Club speech contest. Um, and high schoolers prepare, they present these speeches that they write on topics usually that they choose. Uh, last year the topic was chosen for them uh, just because things were really weird and different. Uh, but usually they will choose a topic that they will then put to what is called the four-way test of the things we think, say, or do. So the four-way test was created by Herbert Taylor. Herbert Taylor is a Rhode Island businessman who was tasked with uh, bringing a company back from the brink of bankruptcy in 1932. Uh, that, that year should uh, ring a bell for some of us. Uh, 1932, it wasn't too long after he took over that uh, Wall Street crashed and we, had, we got uh, sunk into the Great Depression. 
But Taylor understood that a company's success doesn't rely on the product or the service that they provide, because lots of companies provide similar or even identical products or services. What he realized is that it is the actions of the employees towards their customers that makes the difference. And Herbert once said, with tremendous obstacles and handicaps facing us, we felt that we must develop in our organization something which our competitors would not have in equal amount. We decided that it would be the character, dependability, and service-mindedness of our personnel. We determined first to be very careful in the selection of our personnel, and second, to help them become better men and women as they progressed with our company. One of the ways that Taylor decided to do that um, he was kind of looking at the company. He, he came in and, and just kind of overviewing everything. And he discovered this almost impossible to understand lengthy code of ethics that somebody had written years and years ago on how the company was supposed to act. And he realized, first of all, it, it's almost impossible to understand. Second of all, probably nobody actually read it. How many of you have read your code of ethics at your jobs? One, two, well, you write the code of ethics at your job, so um, Wendy is, is an HR professional, um, so she actually writes the code. Um, but not many of us have read the, the, the full code of ethics. We might have skimmed through it, but if we were quizzed on what it says, maybe we would fail that quiz. And Taylor decided that instead of this lengthy, not-read code of ethics, that he would create his own code of ethics, and he would boil all of it down into four easily remembered questions, and those questions are the four-way test. And the questions were this. Is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? Will it be beneficial to all concerned? Four simple questions. Easily remembered. What is it, like 22 words? That's what he boiled this company's code of ethics down to. And Taylor tried living this test himself for 60 days before introducing it to his employees. And on the first day, as he was doing his work and he's reading some ad copy that's coming across his desk and he's looking at other things, he realized he couldn't even get past the first question, is it true? He was reading all kinds of things that were not true, that his company was trying to put out in advertising and in all kinds of other publicity. And maybe as he went along, and I don't have all the background, but maybe he found that, that manufacturing processes weren't being followed the way that they should be followed. Uh, customer service wasn't being done the way that it was supposed to be done. And he spent 60 days trying to live out this four-way test just in his job as the president of the company. And he describes this, this 60 days, at the end of 60 days, he says, I was thoroughly sold on its great worth and at, time, at the same time greatly humiliated and at times discouraged with my own performance as the president of the company. 
I was allowing things to happen that didn't match this four-way test, that we couldn't answer these questions in a way that was positive. But humiliation, discouragement notwithstanding, Taylor introduced the four-way test to his employees and began expecting that they would memorize it and that they would start using it right away. And his employees, he started talking to some of them a couple of days after this, and his employees agreed that the four-way test was a great code of ethics. They could remember it. It was really short. It was just these four questions that informed everything they did. And most importantly, they agreed that truth, justice, friendliness, and helpfulness, the ideas behind the four questions, intersected even with their religious beliefs. Taylor's employees believed that the four-way test was the way they ought to live in their business. Within a couple of years, the company went from almost a half a million dollars in debt and being on the brink of bankruptcy to being completely debt-free, making net profits exceeding $2 million a year. Now, back then, $2 million a year for a company was a lot of money. And half that money over the first few years was, was distributed back to the shareholders, the owners of the company, the people that, that invested, that said, yes, we trust you to do what you said you were going to do. And of course, today, students across the country develop topics that they put to the four-way test. My own students have examined topics like adoption. They've examined topics like life in a pandemic. They've examined topics like standing up to bullying. And they put these topics to this four-way test, seeking to find the best ways that they can practice truth and justice and friendliness and helpfulness in their own lives. This morning, we're going to start looking at another speech of sorts, uh, an oration that bears some striking similarities to the four-way test and the ideas of truth, justice, friendliness, and helpfulness, we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is found in the book of Matthew, the first uh, book of the New Testament, in chapters 5 through 7. And it is the first teachings that we see of Jesus in the Bible. Jesus went, uh, he, he lived until he was about 30 years old. He kind of came on the scene. He came and got baptized by John. Immediately, the Bible says he was sent by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to fast and to be tempted by Satan. And then he came back and he began teaching and he began calling his disciples to follow him. And Jesus, we see in the first four chapters of Matthew, started doing what he would later call his followers to do. See, Jesus taught by example. Jesus showed us what we're supposed to do in addition to telling us what we're supposed to do. He opened himself up to all the temptations of Satan. He opened himself up to experience all the things that we experience as human beings so that he could understand us, so that he could teach us the way that God wanted things to be done. And he did all of that relying on the Holy Spirit. 
He did all of that relying on prayer to God the Father. He did all of that relying on the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Old Testament. Jesus lived the Sermon on the Mount before he preached the Sermon on the Mount. And just as Herbert Taylor told his employees that he lived the four-way test before bringing it to them, Jesus lived on reliance to the Father. Jesus lived on the law and the prophets. Jesus lived those things that God has told his people all throughout history that he wants from them. Matthew chapter 4 tells us that he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought with him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus started teaching what he was already living. He started teaching the gospel, the good news, that the kingdom of God was here. And he, and he continued living the gospel of the kingdom of God. He told the truth to all, regardless of who they were or what their station in life was. He was truthful. Is it the truth? Yes. Jesus didn't just tell the truth. He is the truth. Jesus didn't withhold the kingdom from anyone. He didn't withhold healing from anyone, no matter their pain, no matter, no matter their disease. As he went on in his ministry, it didn't even matter if you were a Jew or not. Jesus started ministering to everyone. And in these few verses, we see that Jesus already meets the requirements of the four-way test. He's speaking truth, he's fair, his words and actions bring people together. Large crowds started following him. And what he says and does, if we are honest with ourselves, what he says and does is beneficial to all. It's not until Jesus has lived with us and demonstrated what life in the kingdom of God should look like that he sits down and he can tell us how we can make the kingdom living a reality. This is how we live in the kingdom of God. And that's where the Sermon on the Mount comes in. Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 to 2 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now remember, great crowds started following him. These people came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Sermon on the Mount is less than 2,500 words long. 2,500 words. The average presidential State of the Union address over the past 100 years is over almost 6,000 words long. 2,500, 6,000. And I would dare to say Jesus said a lot more in 2,500 words than any president has ever said in 6,000. Sermon on the Mount takes about 15 minutes 
to read out loud. If we're reading it out loud, it takes even less time if we're just reading it. The average local newscast is 22 minutes long, not counting commercials. The average sitcom, which a lot of us watch, is 22 minutes long without commercials. It takes less time to read the Sermon on the Mount than it does to watch a half-hour TV show. Blows my mind that so few words could say so much to so many. And much like Herbert Taylor saw in his nearly bankrupt company, this attitude of wrongness, this attitude of we're going to do whatever we can to succeed and we don't care how we do it. Jesus saw in religion an attitude of wrongness. He saw in the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, an attitude of wrongness. Wrongness about what was said and what was done in the name of God. And in just 2,500 words, Jesus teaches the law of God and the way it is supposed to be obeyed and lived. And hearing it takes no time at all. But doing it, well, that takes a lifetime. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians and quite a few non-Christians, they'll look at the Sermon on the Mount, they'll look at some other teachings of Jesus, and they'll say, man, that Jesus was a great teacher. We ought to do some of that stuff sometime. Some Christians look at the Sermon on the Mount, and they take the whole thing out of the context in which it is written, out of the context of the entire life of Jesus Christ, and try to make it mean something that it doesn't mean. And that often happens. Um, just like with other parts of the Bible where people pick and choose the things that they agree with, that, are, that they want to uh, have be right in their eyes, and then they ignore the rest. Let's not do that. Let's take a look at what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, and let's put it into the context of the whole of Jesus' life what he did and what he said. And even more, the whole of Scripture, the whole of God's Word. Because the Sermon on the Mount is but just a small part of the whole Word of God that's been revealed to us through Scripture. We're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount in the context of God's intentions for humanity when he first created us. This is how I wanted humanity to live from the beginning before sin entered the world. Sermon on the Mount is foremost about the kingdom ideas of God's law, God's grace, God's forgiveness, and God's provision. We can boil the Sermon on the Mount down into those four things. God's law, God's grace, God's forgiveness, and God's provision. And how we are supposed to receive those things. It's about how we ought to understand his grace and his forgiveness and his provision so completely that we can't help 
but display his grace and his forgiveness and his provision to others. Sermon on the Mount gives us our own Christian code of ethics, and it does it in 2,500 words. This is the way we ought to live out the faith that Jesus lived out for us. So we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount just for a little while. First thing uh, that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the first teaching, the first part of this sermon is something that the church knows as the Beatitudes. Uh, Beatitudes is a big churchy word, um, and it is churchy because it comes from the Latin uh, for blessings. And of course, uh, in the early church, Latin was the language that scripture was written in. Language was, or Latin was the language that the Bible was written in. We call it the Latin Vulgate. They, they translated everything into Latin, and then only people who knew Latin could understand it. But this word beatitudes means blessings from beati sunt, or blessed are. And eventually, uh, we started calling these the beatitudes. And we might simply call them the blessings of Jesus. I actually kind of like that better than beatitudes. I hate the lofty language. I like to just make it simple. These are the blessings of Jesus. These are the things that Jesus said, if we are these things, we are blessed. If we are these things, we will be blessed by God. We read the Beatitudes in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oh. Oh, I'll sing. I don't care. <laughs> Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here's the real fun part of the blessings of Jesus. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to rejoice and be glad when people do those things because your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you have ever been persecuted, if you have ever been reviled, if you have ever had things said against you for your faith, you're in good company. The prophets had the same thing happen to them. Now we might think about the Beatitudes, these blessings of Jesus as the Christian four-way test. 
Well, the eight-way test, because there are eight blessings instead of uh, four, but we might call it the beatitude test or the blessings test. Short. It's easy to memorize. These are the questions that I should ask myself anytime I think, say, or do anything. Am I poor in spirit? Do I mourn? Am I meek? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Am I merciful? Am I pure in heart? Am I a peacemaker? Am I persecuted for righteousness' sake? Am I reviled? Are all kinds of evil uttered against me falsely? When we see the blessings of Jesus laid out in this way, the first thing we see is that they kind of build on each other. Because if I do the first six, the last two are going to happen. If I'm poor in spirit and mournful and meek, and I hunger and thirst for righteousness, and I'm merciful and I'm pure in heart and I'm a peacemaker, people are going to persecute me. People are going to revile me. People are going to maybe even make up stuff about me. We see this building. We see this progression Jesus gives us. So the thing that we can ask ourselves is, does what we say and do as Christians meet the beatitude test? First thing that we see in these blessings and we're going to look at these over the next few weeks. We're not going to be able to get through them all this morning. But first thing that we see is that these blessings are meant for Christians. They are meant for people who, profe who profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is the test that we as Christians ought to be using on ourselves. We ought to be poor in spirit. We ought to be mournful. We ought to be meek. We ought to hunger and thirst for righteousness and be merciful. We ought to be pure in heart and we ought to seek peace. Not a lot of peace seeking nowadays. Got an email yesterday from our school district and people are just going nuts. Got this side over here, we got this side over here. Bring out the pitchforks, man. It's getting ugly. And a lot of these people are Christians. Not a lot of peacemaking going on. Second thing we need to realize about these blessings is that they are not natural. It is not natural to be humble or meek. Look at our society. What's natural? To be loud and proud. Right? We got to be proud of everything. We got to let people know who we are. It's not natural to offer mercy in this society. According to that guy from the Karate Kid movies, mercy is for the weak, which is good because we're supposed to be meek. Mercy is for the weak, and if I am merciful, even if I show you mercy, you can bet you're going to owe me something. That's how we look at mercy. 
Yeah, I'll forgive you this time, but I'm going to be asking a favor later. You might not know when, and you might not know how, but you're going to pay me back for my mercy. That's how society looks at things. It's not natural to be a peacemaker, like I just said. Most often what's natural is to say, either I'm going to go to war with you, or I'm staying out of it. It's none of my business. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to stay out of it. It's none of my business. I think is almost more dangerous than confrontation. We look at these attributes with their surface meanings and we say, that's not natural. But as we dig deeper into what Jesus really means for these blessings, we're going to come to understand that living this way is not just not natural. Living this way is downright impossible under our own power. And not only is it impossible, but it's hard. It's hard to live this way. Because the third thing is that living the Beatitudes, living these blessings, living all of Scripture for that matter, ought to make us different from people who don't profess faith in Jesus Christ. It just should. We should look different. We should act differently. Everything we say, everything we do is going to be different from people who don't profess faith in Jesus Christ because their primary focus is not on the kingdom of God. It's on the kingdom of self. Living these blessings should make us different. Apostle Paul sums up this concept really well in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Apostle Peter, uh, he's a little more blunt about it in 1 Peter. Uh, <laughs> In 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 15, he says, As obedient children, let's see, where are we? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Harsh, man. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, the way you acted was in ignorance. What Peter is saying here is when you were thinking only of yourself, that was ignorant. Peter's telling us we are to be holy as he who called us is holy. We ought to be different from the world. We ought to be seeking after different things. We ought to be hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not hungering and thirsting for wealth and fame and fortune and social status. We ought to admire people who inhabit the traits of these blessings. According to the world, everything good is a, re is a result of, of self. Self-expression, self-care, self-confidence. 
We ought to be, and we ought to be admiring those who exhibit God expression, who exhibit other care, and who live with self-humility. In other words, we ought to be living in a way that shows the world that we cannot, that we will not do anything, that we will not say anything, that as much as it is possible for us, we will not think anything without putting our thoughts and our words and our actions to the beatitude test. Am I poor in spirit when I say this? Am I mournful when I do this? Am I meek when I deal with people? These are the teachings of Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at the first of these blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Had a lot of different definitions of what poor in spirit means. We're going to take a look at some of those. We're going to try to figure out what exactly is Jesus saying when he says we should be poor in spirit. And maybe we'll get rid of some of those misconceptions as well. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time that we can come and worship you. We thank you for this family of believers, this group of people that you have brought to this place to become this congregation, to become this part of your body, Jesus. Father, we know that we are sometimes woefully inadequate. Sometimes we are downright sinful, sometimes we can't even answer any of the questions in this beatitude test. Often we look to ourselves, and Father, you know I'm more guilty of that than anyone. Father, forgive us. Father, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to understanding how you would have us live this kingdom life, how you would establish your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the strength to be humble. Give us the weakness to rely on you. Father, open our eyes to the words of your Son, Jesus Christ. Let us learn from him what it is to live this kingdom life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the first Sunday of September, and as we do on the first Sunday of every month, we're going to be taking communion this morning. However, we're going to be doing it a little bit differently today. Uh, we are not going to use those hard-to-open, noisy, plastic, packaged things that we have been using since the COVID uh, 
era started. Uh, we actually are going to be serving uh, the bread and the cup. We do have, we're not going to be dipping our bread into our cup. We're not there yet. Uh, but what we do have, uh, and, and thank you deacons for, for arranging this, we do have uh, individual pieces of bread that will be given to you by a gloved deacon. Uh, we do have uh, individual cups with the uh, juice that you can uh, take back to your seats. We are going to continue doing uh, communion as we have done, where everybody is served, everybody is back at their seats, and then we will all partake together. Communion is a time of remembrance, and it's a time of reflection for Christ followers. And I'm, so, I'm actually really so glad that the kids are here because I want them to hear this. Communion is a time of remembrance and reflection. It's when we remember the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and the bread represents his body and the, the cup represents his blood. But more than just remembering, we also remember why Christ came to die. He died so that we might live. He died because God's love for us was so immense and his desire to rescue us from being dead in sin was so great that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us. And as we're taking communion, we ought to remember that. Not just that the bread and the wine represent Christ's body and blood, but what the body and blood represent. Communion is also a time of reflection. Apostle Paul tells us that we should not commemorate communion in an unworthy fashion. And what he meant is that if we are to remember Christ's death and we are to remember what it did for us, we ought to be living the life that Christ instructed for us as much as we possibly can. We ought to confess our sins to God. We ought to ask forgiveness from him for those sins. And we ought to forgive our brothers and sisters when they ask forgiveness from us and we ought to be asking forgiveness when we wrong our brothers and sisters our lives ought to reflect our striving to live the way Jesus taught us as we prepare for communion service this morning I want us to take a few moments so that we can reflect so that we can examine ourselves as you're reflecting, think back on your life. Recall sins for which you have not asked forgiveness and ask forgiveness for those sins. Remember the wrongs that you have done to other people for which you have not repented and purpose in your heart that you will go to them very soon and repent of those wrongs and think of those people who have wronged you that you have not yet forgiven and purpose in your heart to forgive them I'm going to take a few minutes a few moments to pray to reflect and then I'm going to ask the deacons who are serving to come up the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, 
which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, the body of Christ. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, the blood of Christ. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we leave here this morning, I wonder if you would join me in praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God bless you this week.